0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell.
1: And I'm Don Mills.
0: Mr. Mills, we had an excellent conversation today with Brandon Searle, the Director of Innovation and Operations at the UNB Offsite Construction Research Centre. We really wanted to probe about the work of that centre and some possible uh, role for it to help us ease the housing crisis we have here in Atlantic Canada.
1: Yeah, uh, until you mentioned the center, I had no awareness of, of this work. And of course, it's only been around for a short period of time—I think four years—but I think it, it provides uh, a real focus for um, uh, sort of off-site uh, construction of homes. Uh, they're focused on permanent homes, not uh, not movable uh, structures. Um, and uh, you know, there's some really good examples of uh, this work already happening. Uh, the 12 neighborhoods. In Fredericton, which we talked about a little bit about in the podcast, is a really good example. They're really focused on uh, homeless uh, people uh, getting homes. Uh, they were uh, manufactured, I guess, offsite and, and brought to a location. So you know, when we start to see good examples of how modular homes can play a role in, in the housing supply, I think it, it encourages more people to consider that options, especially municipal leaders you know because they're they're dealing with this homelessness issue uh, in every every community basically and uh this is a this is a reasonably good uh, solution at least for some of that problem um and the the model that uh, Fredericton is doing with uh 12 neighborhoods is really a good one because uh you know they're for people who are working in the community uh who are homeless and uh you know they created a a, a nice uh, uh, neighborhood, um, and I think they're expanding that too based on recent information. So that's a good example of a very good application. And as you pointed out in the podcast, and I think this is this this is a message for all the municipalities in the region. You know the regulations allowing modular homes need to be revisited. You know this is a the, the modular homes today are very different than they were 20 years ago. The quality um, is substantially higher. And one of the things that municipalities should think about is that the disruption from a construction point of view is significantly lower for people living in neighborhoods where, you know, these units are being built because they're just being transported there and basically assembled. So, you know, it's a lot less intrusive uh, and in terms of people living in near construction sites and uh, you know, I actually hadn't thought about that until the conversation we had with Brandon.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think one of the big problems is a lack of education. He told us, for example, in Japan, there's a preference for uh, manufactured housing because the quality is actually higher uh, than the stuff that's built, a custom built on site. So I think there's a real need to educate uh, municipalities and the public about the quality that comes with these this type of modular housing. But then I think we have to really think about building this out as a sector, the way we would any sector. He talked about a school uh, to train trades in modular construction. I think that was in the United Kingdom. We should be doing that here. You know, We should really take this sector seriously. He told us there at the end of the conversation that most of the firms he's working with have a two-year backlog. Well, that's not really going to help us solve our housing crisis if they can't build any new houses. So um, in my opinion, we should take this sector seriously. We should maybe we need new manufacturing plants established. maybe we need a, a serious workforce development strategy. But you know at the end of the day, if you could build 500 or thousand homes or more a year in this region using modular construction, that would be a huge win in my opinion.
1: Well, I think that that's right. I mean you know the, this is a, an enormous opportunity for anybody out there in the manufacturing sector. Um, because the supply is not up to the demand in any way, and it won't be for many years. And so, uh, you know, these are not just for single dwelling uh, units either. They're for multiple units, you know, duplexes and triplexes, and even high-rises. I mean, there's a couple that have been built in the in different cities in the world that are 30 or 40 stories high. So, you know, we need to, as you said, reimagine, what marginal uh, housing is all about. And, um, and you know, uh, you talked about the opportunity as an export market as well, which could be considerable if we if we got, you know, to some sort of scale in this region. Yeah, you need the firms,
0: you need the workforce. And right now we're constrained on both fronts. But I do think uh, after talking to Brendan, I think, or Brendan, I think we uh, – have uh, seen the potential here and got a good sense. And I think it's well worth uh, the listener's time to have a, to hear what uh, Brandon has to say. So without any further ado, here's our conversation with Brandon Searle from the UNB uh, uh, Offsite Construction Research Centre. So welcome to the Insights Podcast, Brandon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about the Offsite Construction Research Centre, can you give us a summary of your career path, and where you were born, where you got your education and so on, how you ended up uh, at UNB? Yeah, for sure.
2: Um, yeah, so I uh, actually grew up in Riverview, New Brunswick, just outside of, of Moncton. Um, and yeah, like, like similar or like most uh, young New Brunswickers, I like grew up in a hockey rink and, and traveling around the province um, or, or the region. Um, I, uh, I came to UNB in 2011 to do a Bachelor's of uh, Science in Civil Engineering uh, and I also pursued my diploma in, in technology management entrepreneurship. And uh, you guys might like, I, I did dabble in economics a little bit. I had uh, I decided to take a victory lap with my engineering degree, not uh, by choice, and uh, figured I enjoy economics. I'm going to take a few more courses. So I think I'm about three credit hours away from a, a minor in that. Um, after, or I guess... In parallel i i worked in new brunswick the whole time i i worked at uh irving personal care and in dieppe um, manufacturing uh diapers (laughs) um and then also spent a couple summers with the city of Moncton doing capital projects uh before entering the private sector i worked for a contractor and then uh before uh, or when i graduated worked for a consulting company called Opus International Consultants. They were New Zealand based and they had acquired a couple local firms here in Fredericton. Uh, We were then acquired by WSP in 2018, and I joined UMB in 2019 as uh, the second staff member at the research center. And uh, I guess I still dabble a little bit in consulting with, uh, with municipalities
0: um, on
2: mostly on infrastructure management. So, so yeah.
0: Okay. So, I read uh, on the internet that you were recently named one of the top 40 under 40 rising leaders in Canada's construction sector. So congratulations on that. And can you tell us a little bit about that award?
2: Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, Yeah, so the the award is organized by uh, Onsite Magazine and Site Partners uh, Marketing Agency. Um, uh, My understanding is it was the third year of them doing the award where they recognized uh, top 40, under 40 uh, rising leaders in construction, as you mentioned. Um, I was fortunate to have some of my colleagues uh, nominate me for the award. But uh, in my opinion, it's really a reflection of of the center and the su- success that we've had uh, since 2019. Um, and, and maybe they wanted to add some maritime flavor to it because I don't believe there's... Ever, it's been ontario alberta you know bc uh focused historically so I, I was one of the first to to be named from the maritime so i was pretty excited about that yeah
1: yeah so congratulations again on that uh, so i'm pretty sure i'm a lot of like uh, a lot of people are listening to this podcast until david brought it to my attention i've never heard of the off-site construction research center <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'd like you to tell us uh what uh, what the center is all about and and its focus if you could to uh, to uh, you know give us a better yeah. idea about the work that you do and and I just want to mention you know David and I have a big interest in housing given the population growth so that's one of the reasons that we reached out to, to learn more about your work because it you know obviously could play a, a role in solving some of the housing uh, supply issues that we have so over to you yeah, yeah for sure yeah um yeah Yeah. So the Offsite Construction
2: Research Center, it was uh, created in 2018 in partnership with uh, Osco Construction Group. They're our founding partner. Uh, And we have a mission to accelerate construction innovation through the improvement and adoption of offsite construction technologies and practices. And our vision is to be the Canadian leader in offsite construction, knowledge creation and mobilization. So uh, I guess just to to put that in layman's terms, the idea is to connect academia, industry, and government to innovate and do applied research. As a center, we almost act as an extension of an organization's research division. Or sometimes, you know, in, in construction, we there isn't as much investment in research. Let's say so. Um, we are often the research division for some of our industry partners. Uh, to date, we've worked with over forty. Or sorry, over thirty companies on and completed over forty projects. Seventy-five uh, percent of those companies are Atlantic Canadian, um, and our whole mandate is doing projects that move activities that are traditionally done on-site to an off-site. Plant And, you know, that can be done through the implementation of digital technology that then enables an activity to move off site, using those digital technologies to increase productivity or quality of existing plants. And I will talk more, I think, about uh, some of the projects later. Um, Or... um, some testing services to potentially bring new products to market or existing products to new markets. And, and that gets into the, the export um, aspects that, that both of you would be interested in as well. Um, so that's kind of our, our focus at the, the center right now. And uh, you know, we've grown significantly over, over the last four years, Osco uh, through Hans clone and, and uh, Mr. John Irving had a vision when they approached UMB to create the center um, and one thing they were adamant about is that it's not supposed to be, um, you know, specifically for Osco. So we actually have an advisory board which consists of twelve uh, executives across the country, ten of which are from the private sector, which makes mm-hmm. us very unique uh, for a center on on campus, anyways. Um, and that was that was one of the priorities for uh, hands. Uh, when, when they were creating the center in partnership with UMB was we want to make sure it's applied research with industry partners that makes a difference in the industry. Um, so yeah, that's it's kind of a little summary of, of the OCRC. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's good. Uh, you know, I know that there is some offsite construction uh, happening already. Like, you know, there's places like Kent Holmes who are doing, um, you know, you um, you know, constructions of homes and then moving them to sites but uh, you know can you give us a little bit of an idea about where that sector is today in the region? Yeah for sure so um, yeah you mentioned Ken Holmes um,
2: of uh, I think there's about nine to ten uh, organizations in New Brunswick anyways that that act in the offsite construction space. And, and I try to divvy it up, you know, offsite construction, pretty broad. I separated as panelized and, um, modular volumetric, uh, houses, right. Um, it, I think, or in my opinion, is New Brunswick is actually a leader in this. We have plenty of companies. You got Prestige Homes, Elantra Leasing, Ironwood Manufactured Homes, Supreme Homes, Kent Homes, uh, a, a new, relatively new startup, Plus Pew Homes, Atlantic Mini Homes, uh, all starting uh, in the region who we've done work with. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we've. I personally believe that New Brunswick is, uh, is, can be a leader in this and already has capacity to do it. And, and uh, it's really a matter of, of growing the efficiency and productivity of, of those existing organizations and, and removing barriers to those organizations, uh, um, being able to do projects as well.
1: There's a bit of a, a mini home project going on right now in uh, Fredericton, right? Is are, are those manufactured and, and and delivered to that site? Is that is that an example? So,
2: so yeah, so there's um, there's a couple. So you might be referring to Twelve Neighbors, the, yes, the nonprofit. It. Yeah, yeah, so they're do, they're doing tiny homes um, and building a community um, just on the north side of Fredericton here for vulnerable populations. It, it's really unique. I mean, I can't speak to it. Uh, uh, I wouldn't be the best person to speak to it, but my understanding through discussions with Marcel Lebrun or, or uh, seeing him um, present. Uh, is that it's really about giving uh, folks who are are considered vulnerable population the skill sets to re-enter the workforce and also a home in an an area or safe haven type of thing. So uh, part of my understanding, part of the requirements for the folks living in those homes are also they have to work in the community. So the residents are also building the homes and yeah, they are offsite. Right now, I would say that they are... um, kind of traditional construction within a factory um not necessarily manufacturing which uh some of the other organizations the the for-profit entities uh are really focused on on uh um t- converting to manufacturing type processes and and uh and increasing productivity through that
1: yeah yeah uh, so tell us uh, how your centre is funded. Maybe give us some uh, some numbers in terms of the size of your staff and research group that you have.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I mentioned OSCO uh, approaching UMB in 2018. That was the initial funding of uh, $2 million over five years. Um, beyond that, we've received uh, initial funding from a COA for phase one of establishing the Offsite Construction Research Centre. And then we... Um, apply for grant funding through uh, National Research Council. They have an Industrial Research Assistant Program, uh, New Brunswick Innovation Foundation, MyTax, uh, and as well as fee for service contracts with uh, industry partners. So, since that initial two million, we, we've we've grown that, including the two million, to over six million. Um, and of that three, just over three million would be from the private sector partners through. Uh, fee-for-service contracts and or partnerships where we can leverage um, a funding agency to do internships so we always have students kind of go through um, through the program who are pursuing you know a master's or phd and do an internship with an industry partner Um, our staff right now we are at five and we'll be at seven soon Um, but it's a bit of a unique business model. So uh, we have full-time staff uh, that will be at seven shortly, uh, led by our research chair, who's also a professor, uh, uh, Dr. Zen Lei uh, and myself as uh, innovation and operations director. Um, And then within that, we also have masters, PhD and postdoc researchers who they participate in all the projects in parallel to pursuing their degree. Um, and they have an opportunity to get um, skills and uh, jobs and internships with some of our local partners or or regional partners. And in all cases, every student who's graduated uh, and gone through the program has ended up uh, receiving a job offer from the company they interned with. It's also an opportunity for those companies to to uh, get a bright minded uh, individual with uh, a diverse expertise um, to come into their space. Um, beyond that, we we work with faculty members. So occasionally we'll have folks from Scott Bateman in computer science, he's a faculty member there. He might come in on a, on a project that requires some c- computer programming or uh, some augmented reality technology uh if it's a structural focus project or some testing we might get um dr alan lloyd from civil engineering to come in um so that's kind of our model and then we collaborate uh, broadly across the country with some other universities uh to to uh, bring their skill sets and and things to the center
0: can you uh Give our listeners an example of, or several examples of the kinds of projects you work on. I, I think it's everybody's got kind of in their head what, what sort of modular construction might or might not look like, but maybe you can help us define that. Are you working on very technical challenges? Are you working on uh, on on assembly issues? What, what, what are you actually working on at the center?
2: Yeah, so I can give a few examples. I would say they are all... Um, Mostly technical challenges. I mean, so since we've mentioned OSCO, I'll speak to one of their companies, Stresscon. They're a precast concrete company uh, with a plant in St. John and Bedford. Um, Some of the work we've done with them is have a student use augmented reality um, through their quality assurance and quality control processes. Some issues they were running into were um, having having new grads or uh, young professionals come in, in as inspectors and read blueprints efficiently uh, or drawings, I guess, efficiently. And, you know, this generation has grown up with video games and technology and may be able to grasp uh, a HoloLens lens that overlays um, a virtual model on, in the plant type of thing. Uh, so we did some research with them where we actually, applied the technology in the plant. Our our student did a one-year internship there. She trained some of their trades and and labor staff on the technology. Um, And that's ultimately to increase productivity in the plant, reduce the amount of waste. Uh, Obviously uh, um, less material waste is, is better for everyone, including the environment. Um, And in, in, ultimately lower the cost of the project. So that's it's kind of one example, more on the housing side. We've worked with quite a few of the manufactured home companies in the province, and it's all around productivity improvement. So we go in, uh, do time studies, better understand their processes, areas where they can improve the manufacturing process. I think we're going to touch on this later, but um, they've all seen have trouble with finding skilled labor uh, skilled trades, um, the price of materials is a major issue right now. So um, they're trying to minimize their material waste, increase productivity. They have the backlog there, which is you know needed in manufacturing, um, but they it's continuing to grow, and we need to find ways to increase productivity. So what we've often done is worked with organizations, understand their processes, and then understand how we can, Um, help implement technology that might support their process. So one example is uh, one organization, they're actually three of the modular companies we've worked with are either building a new plant or adding extensions on their existing plant because of how busy they are right now. And um, one of them in particular, uh, they're looking at introducing smart saws. So those are uh, robotic saws almost that can automatically cut and bundle wood. and to do that, you have to change how your design happens. And so we help those organizations implement the new technology. That can include some computer programming. Uh, that can include some training, um, and, and you know, kind of standard operating procedures, that type of stuff. And also act as an in between with the equipment suppliers from all over the world on on what's best for that organization. So we do a lot of that, and and then. Finally, uh, you know, with an organization like like Malta Inc, it's, it was pretty publicized that we received some funding with uh, New Brunswick Innovation Foundation to to work with Malta. So Malta is an MOU with MB Power to build an energy storage system uh, in the province. And they're looking they have kind of their first iteration and then they're looking at a second iteration and they're looking at how they could uh, modularize the uh the design. And so they're working with Zen on the constructability and how you can do that all virtually before actually physically doing that. And part of that project is looking at supply chain as well. So what can our local supply chain do? What needs to be imported? I know I I listened to your discussion with uh, Brett Plummer, I believe from MB Power and, and SMRs came up in supply chain. So I think there's some opportunities for us to collaborate and look at uh, you know, it's it's going to be similar organizations that need to get trained and get involved with SMRs, and, and I believe in that sector. So uh, that's some of the research that we're doing right now.
0: Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your labs and facilities? Like, what kind of infrastructure do you have, or is it mostly just sort of consulting and computer-based stuff? So we, so we're located in Head Hall, which is the engineering.
2: Building on the Fredericton, UMB Fredericton campus. Um, So, we work closely with the Department of Civil Engineering, use their structures lab. So, that's uh, structural testing. We're currently building a building envelope testing lab, which will be the first in Atlantic Canada. Um, And then, beyond that, it's a lot of computational labs. So, uh, we have a computer lab space that we renovated and, and built in 2019. Uh, we're starting a new renovation on campus here soon. And uh, we're working with the uh, Faculty of Engineering um, who recently acquired some space um, on to decide if we're going to need that space and what type of testing we might do there. So uh, that's kind of some of the, the things we have. I think as we grow, we'll be getting into more full-scale testing volumetric module testing and we're seeing demand in that and so with that will come some infrastructure and, and real estate space required so um but right now it's it's a lot of you know computational labs and, and existing labs that that UMB has.
0: So earlier in March it was announced you were you were receiving additional funding from ACOA you might have mentioned that earlier so how, how long is the funding going to last is this is this a um... Do you see the center lasting sort of into perpetuity or does it have kind of a shelf life?
2: Yeah. So the idea is to make it last, um, you know, forever. Um, I view it as in a way, a startup within the university, which received some significant seed funding. The announcement last week from ACOA was one po- just over 1.3 million of new funding um, to which is called phase two of establishing the Offsite construction research center. And within that is a strategy to become financially sustainable. Um, So to do that, we will be, you know, hiring more staff, uh, doing more projects, bringing in more revenue, but also kind of, um, sorry, I'm drawing a blank here. was kind of becoming that center, that hub of excellence in the country is kind of the goal of that. And and we went through a strategic planning process uh, this past year with several KPIs to, to hit on. Um, that that funding is also going to the building envelope testing facility. And what that means is I, I mentioned earlier, there are organizations who have existing products that they wanna to bring to new markets or, or new products to market. Um, with that, there's this whole idea of productization within the housing industry of, you know, not every drawing needs to be engineered stamp. It's about creating new products. And, and many of our partners are looking at how you can move more trades into a manufacturing facility. So there's a project in Bedford where they embedded windows in precast plants. Uh, but now they're looking at, okay, can we embed uh, mechanical electrical plumbing in those plants and, and bring more of those trades off site, which provides uh, numerous benefits for safety, um, for reducing material waste, for improving productivity and so on. Um, So that funding is gonna help us to create that testing facility, which then we'll be able to test, um, you know, integrations of of different uh, traits or or, uh, utilities in in different panels and and things, so.
1: Uh, Brandon, earlier you mentioned that um... You know, there's a quite a number of companies involved in this sector in New Brunswick, but we have an interest in the whole uh, Atlantic Canada region, I guess. It sounds like you're doing work outside of New Brunswick. You just mentioned Bedford. Uh, but uh, can you give us a sense of the size of the market and the opportunity? And I, again, we'd like to focus on Atlantic Canada. That might be hard for you to do. But, <clears throat> you know, how big is the modular construction sector today? And we really like the, you know, probe on how big it could be. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so
2: to focus on strictly on Atlantic Canada, I don't necessarily have stats to, to back that up right now, but it is something we're working on. I can reference in 2018 modular building Institute out of the U S did a study called the five and five. And, uh, that was North American focus where they were hoping to grow the, the construction industry um, from 2% modular construction to 5% in five years. Uh, The scope of that work included traveling to Sweden, Japan, uh, UK to understand what some of the drivers are for the successes of offsite and and prefab modular construction there. And one thing that came out of it was actually in Sweden, 84% of, of detached homes have prefabricated elements in it. Right now, you know, we I would I would say that we're probably, you know, North America might be, I think it's at 3.17% in 2017. We would probably apply that to Atlantic Canada as well, um, of all construction activities being modular. And one thing I should have mentioned right at the beginning is that we there's it's important to separate Permanent modular and relocatable modular. We're focused on hmm. permanent modular. Relocatable hmm. modular has been around for a while. You know, you see a construction site with a Kent Homes trailer, or a Lantra trailer, or some of the temporary schools. Um, those are relocatable, but we're focused on, on the mo- on the permanent modular section sector. Um, so, right now, I would say that. You know, we don't have the numbers to 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 back up what's happening in Atlantic Canada. It's something we're doing. We're we're doing some supply chain research to better understand what capabilities uh, the existing manufacturers have, as well as capacity. Because I know, you know, if you go to website of one of our partners, they recently built a hotel in Florenceville, but you wouldn't you would think they they do you know mini homes and, and trailers, um, but they have capacity to do much more. We have to look at what are the barriers to them doing that. Uh, why aren't you know developers um, the, from the private sector or governments uh, looking at this more? Um, I I have an opinion that procurement needs to change, policy needs to change. Um, there's some training that needs to happen. Architects, designers, consultants need to need to think a little bit differently. It's it, you got to designing uh, traditional buildings different than designing for manufacturing and assembly. And that's that's some of the research we're doing. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question, Don, but but it, there's a lot of room for growth. And I know one of the recommendations out of that five in five document published by MBI in 2018 was that they should really be targeting uh, 10% by 2025. And I think, you know, through the rapid housing initiative at the federal government, I know our provincial government is, um, interested in modular construction they announced you know 100 million for housing last fall um we've been talking to them about that and and how things may need to change to to leverage some of the companies locally um but yeah there you know there's a there's a lot of opportunity to to do it and there's organizations that can do it it's how can we leverage them successfully
1: yeah, so just as a little editorial aside, like, you know, one of the important roles that you could play is as a, you know, a data source. Uh, and, and like, you, it's hard to promote growth if you don't know what the base is. and And like, you might be in a good, the better, better position to gather that information and start, you know, one of the problems, I think, with this sector right now is that nobody's talking about it. <laughs> or, or, or there's very few people talking about it. Yeah, and yeah. so to raise the awareness of the opportunity, like that 12 neighborhood is a really good example. That's gotten a lot of play across probably the country. Yeah, and it's a you know really a, it's a really a good initiative, and it shows uh, it shows uh, in a very specific example the value of uh, manufactured modular homes, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, that's a, that's a real awareness builder for sure. Anyway, David, over no, there. No, I think
0: that's right, Don. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. I was just talking to a city manager this morning, and it's my understanding now that there's lots of cities that actually don't allow modular housing in there within the city limits, yep. and there's still this view among some that it's cheaper, lower lower quality and almost equated to the sort of old, uh, old school, uh, mobile homes, right? The ones that yeah. were sort of on, you know, you sort of backed up and you put on, uh, on your cement blocks. Um, so I think there is Don's right. I think there's a lot of work to be done around education. I read that, uh, you know, there's now multi-story, uh, apartment buildings being built using modular construction. There was one in Sarnia not that long ago. So I think there's lots of, I think Don's right. Maybe education should be part of your mandate Brandon.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. So we recently received funding from the province to develop an offsite construction certificate, um, which will be delivered by September, 2024. That's educating uh, existing industry players, as well as the, the next generation of consultants, engineers, designers, architects on, on what can be done. There was a, I wanna say it was forty-four story modular apartment built in, in New York not that long ago. Um hmm. it, it might be that one might have been thirty-four, the forty-four might be in the UK. But you know it's happening. Um I mentioned that project in, in Florenceville. One thing that was really cool about this, and maybe some of the developers listening might might be interested, is in parallel to all the on-site work being done, every all the second, third, and fourth floors were being Manufactured at a plant in Sussex, so all the beds, all the TVs, all the toilets, all the sinks, everything was going to Sussex. All of that was installed in the plant and shipped up Route Two to Florenceville, where they stick built um, the first floor, the convention center, did all the civil work, etc. And just like you know, as a in the commercial space, if you can crunch that schedule by six eight months, you're bringing in revenue that much quicker. I would argue. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, cost less money to do something modular. I think there's increased cost certainty. I think there's uh, increased safety for workers. Um, I think if you look at it, like take a life cycle assessment approach on it, um, there will be a lot of benefits there. But, you know, bottom dollar, I don't know if, if it's necessarily going to cost less. And I agree, we have to get away from you know, there's this mindset that modular is, is many homes, which is fine. That's one sector of the market, but it can be much more. I know that, you know, the temporary schools, those might have been designed to be a temporary fix, right? A one, two year shelf life. And then, you know, governments change priorities change so on and so forth next thing you know you have temporary schools that were supposed to be there for two years there for 10 20 years and that comes with a stigma that modular is cheap low quality so on and so forth so we got to get away from that i know in japan um that study i mentioned the five and five there's actually uh, it's it's commonly known that it costs more on average eight percent more to have a modular building but there's a willingness to pay because the increased quality and and how much shorter the schedule is in delivering those buildings. So,
1: hmm.
0: so you mentioned briefly earlier the project with Malta, and I know you've got some non-disclosure agreements and so on. So I don't want you to violate anything. <laughs> but can you, as one clear example, Malta is working with NB Power. It's a it's a it's a, um, a battery storage or, or or an energy storage company. Um, just to explain to our listeners how, how you might work with a company like that. Do they have, is it technical issues? Is it sort of physical capacity issues? Is it how to keep these batteries uh, warm in the winter? Like what kinds of things would you be doing with uh, with a company like that?
2: Yeah. So, so back in December of 2021, I want to say uh, Malta met with UMB, many uh, faculty members, researchers at UMB, along with MB Power, uh, which was actually organized by the former dean, uh, Chris didick And, you know, Malta, they came to an MOU with um, MB Power to to collaborate and work on uh, the second phase of this. Uh, it's called a Pumped Heat Energy Storage System, or PHES. Um, and my understanding is that the hope is to, to have that in New Brunswick, Um Sooner than later, um, so the idea is, mind from what I've read, anyways, and this is all public. It's it can their system can store energy for eight hours to eight days, which you know we talk about the grid and balancing the grid and peak hours and and so on and so forth. So you just imagine the benefits of that. And I, I know that you know you guys have lots of folks talking about in the energy sector on the podcast, and you know. Uh, grid management is key and how are we going to supply energy when we're everything's electrified in, in the future. So big opportunity there. Um, Where we come in with Malta is uh, we look at constructability. So uh, my colleague, Dr. Lay uh, his background is in building information, modeling and virtual design and construction. So that is literally designing the plant virtually before doing it physically. Looking at how you can optimize the components, modularize them, looking at optimization of equipment, labor, so on. Um, and that's where we come in. So, you know, do you need three cranes or can you use two cranes? How, where do you locate those cranes? How do you adjust those cranes? All that stuff. And what capacity do we have in the province? You know, there are not a ton of crane suppliers um, in New Brunswick or, or in the region, I should say. Um, so what capacity do we have to actually do this and how can you best construct it? I mentioned the, the supply chain stuff. So, you know, osco, the laurenvilles, the sunny corners, et cetera. they're obviously interested in the project and, and and getting their input on on what they can do is an important part of of the study as well
1: um one of the main reasons why we wanted to bring you on the podcast brandon brandon, is to um you know, determine if modular construction could be one way to solve our housing crisis now and into the future. And just uh, the maritime provinces alone, you know, the population increased by 100,000 between 2019 and 2022. Uh, this represents an unprecedented population growth. And, and really, honestly, the housing sector was not ready for that growth and still is in a catch-up mode. In addition to the lack of capacity, the workforce is aging, with a third of the workers over fifty-five, and uh, so labor force is an issue. Uh, do you think off-site or modular construction, you know, you know, can obviously, you you think it's obviously can play a part of the solution? My question is, what needs to happen? Because it seems to me one of the early challenges is market demand you know and and one and, and people think of manufactured homes as david mentioned earlier as being of a lower quality perhaps than you know custom design, you know built homes you know what's what's the wedge into this marketplace is it for people who are uh you know, looking for affordable homes, or, or, or maybe, like, you know, the 12th neighborhood, people who are don't have homes and, and need a place to stay? How how do you get this form of housing more popular and seen as an alternative? I think that that's, that's the question I want to ask.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, so, yes, obviously, I, I view it as part of the solution. And, you know, there are, We participated in a workshop that the province organized recently where we were talking about, you know, affordable housing for low income residents, vulnerable populations. We were talking about the missing middle and as well as well, not really as applicable in our region, but kind of the, the skyscraper type type stuff. I would say modular has a has a space in the tiny home sector, like what 12 Neighbors is doing, but also that missing middle, which is duplexes, triplexes, single family homes, apartment buildings, um, that type of space. And yeah, you mentioned, you know, I think our premier said, you know, we'll hit 1 million in population by 2040. Premier Houston was 2 million in Nova Scotia by 2060, which is super exciting. But with that comes a housing crunch. And Locally, the New Brunswick Business Councils, working with their uh, their members uh, who are you know have uh, staff scattered throughout rural New Brunswick and rural Nova Scotia, would be the same um, who are in need of housing. Um, and, and New Brunswick has created the Housing Hub of New Brunswick to to help with that the rural housing aspect. Um, so the and they're all interested in modular modular can can play a role in the urban center It you know you don't need as much laydown area it doesn't disrupt the surrounding community or the environment as much but similarly it can benefit the rural sector because you don't necessarily need to float uh, equipment and uh and labor and materials and so on all the way out to those rural communities I think for us to leverage this sector and, and to gain, get the most benefit out of it. Again, it changes, it's changes in bylaws. David, you mentioned, you know, you spoke to a city manager, that's very common. And I think um, there is a manufacturer to housing association of Atlantic Canada Um, getting more folks on on, involved in that will be key to, to advocate to, for, for these bylaw changes, Uh, changes in policy and procurement models, you know, To me, procurement models really need to change. A colleague in Alberta, University of Alberta, did a study with the province there. Um, They had five projects that they wanted to go modular and they put them out to tender and no one bid on them. And, you know, well, this is what I'm told anyways. And, you know, a big part of that is, you can't go to a manufacturing plant with a customized solution and they're not going to upend their plant to do a one-off house. Right. But if the province said we need to build this apartment, it's going to be 40 modules. You, you do all 40, maybe they'll change. And that's where you'll start to see economies of scale and benefits, just like manufacturing. You talked about customizability, Don. Um, so, you know, historically we, modular was viewed as cookie cutter what's happening now is through the technology that we have um generative design is a buzzword in in my world um we can start to customize things without impacting the assembly line right and if you think about a car you know they're not impact you go to if you were to go to toyota you would be overwhelmed with the amount of decisions they're trying to they're giving you right but they're not at changing their assembly line so it's really reframing I think for those businesses as well is what decisions are you giving the consumer to uh, feel like they're getting a customized solution without impacting assembly so there's that piece but there's also removing all these barriers barriers around training barriers around policy barriers around procurement and that's where I think we can we can see the the most benefits um, I, I should mention, you know, a colleague uh, um, in the UK, he's always pitched this hub and spoke model. And I wonder if it would work well for here. Here, It's an idea of you build the shell in, in a hub location, ship the shell out to several spoke locations, uh, finish, do the finishings and everything there, and then you get your housing. Obviously UK geographically is different for us than us, but that would also require uh, some of the private sector to work together, you know, maybe you have some folks doing roofs, some folks doing walls, some folks doing bathroom pods, and bringing that together in a hub. It's almost the the reverse of the Toyota model manufacturing model. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think that uh, that's some of the ways that we can change modular. I I, I think procurement is a big piece of it. Uh, government can lead the way; they can put that carrot there for for folks to innovate and, and try it. And and then when it's showing that it works well, which we also do case studies to try and prove that it is a solution, but when it when it's proven to work well, then developers and, and so on will hopefully uh, see the value and, and go that route as well.
0: So Brandon, another preoccupation or main preoccupation of this podcast is economic development, ensuring this region has Export-focused sectors to that bring in money and help help foster a strong economy here locally. A long time ago, going back probably 15 years, um, New Brunswick was actually looking at modular construction. In fact, there was a a firm in the north that I won't name that was supposed to build components for bridges in northern Canada, and then it went bankrupt, and you know, the government was left on the hook for a huge amount of money, and it was a bit of a scandal at the time. But the concept was there, right? This idea that you take a place like New Brunswick that has lots of port facilities, the ability to ship these big components out by barge or by ship, uh, and you you construct them and then you assembly, assemble them on site uh, wherever that could be. In this case, it was Northern Canada. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on that idea too. So in addition to building houses for the local market, is there opportunity at some point down the road to actually be building, you know, components for industrial or commercial or even housing projects here that are uh, serving markets in the US or somewhere else uh, in the world? And and if so, do we have any strengths? Is there anything that that sort of would favor New Brunswick or the maritime provinces for that sector?
2: Yeah, um, for sure. And I think a lot of we're already doing it. Um, You know, I mentioned earlier, we've worked with six uh, modular companies in the province We've also worked with three in Nova Scotia, Don, so it's not <laughs> New Brunswick called um, uh, And nine offsite construction companies in the province. Of those nine, eight of them export outside the province, a lot of them to northeastern US. Um, we obviously, you mentioned, we have the transportation infrastructure for this. Uh, one of our strengths is, I think we're a small province. We're agile. We can we can move quickly or a smaller region. We got to work collaboratively, obviously, to... Um, um, we have a strong. Well, we're the numbers might be going down. We have a strong skilled trades base. My, all my. I was the first one in my family to to get a, a university degree. All my uh, ancestors are, are in skilled trades, and um, I just didn't have that skill set, unfortunately. But um, you know, we are strong in that area, and, and that is something we can leverage and, and build on. Um, you mentioned Osco, uh, I think uh, in your question there, and you know they're building, a, their, a lot of their product is going to to the Northeast US or, or further. Actually, I remember Hans Klone talking to me and, and he said one of the ideas for the research center was to create a hub that would you know commercialize research that would lead to startups that are building widgets and, and, and modules and, and different things that could get exported Outside of the province and uh, outside of the region, and part of this idea came from I think a trip in Ireland where there's a uh, a company there. They so they became really they the region became known for building specific construction equipment, I believe, and and, and a lot of funding went to it, and they became leaders in that, and that drove the economy there and and he saw an opportunity for us to do the same in, in Atlantic Canada. Um, so yeah, it, it's doable. Um, you know, we, we have to work together, invest in it. Um, I think there's opportunity in the SMR world to, to become leaders in, in export in that as well. And I, I think the skill sets required for both are very, you know, it's manufacturing, it's industrial engineering. It's, it's an area that, that we can, That we can pursue and and, uh, become leaders in um we obviously have to grow the workforce we have to attract more trades more newcomers to canada with that means more housing ironically um and then also reskilling existing trades so uh i think in the uk there's a there's a collaboration between the government and a college there where they've actually created a, a a school to train existing trades in the manufacturing process. So it's rethinking about how you, you almost build a building, right? You, you train your cross train. So if you go to a plant, uh, you know, Bill isn't doing just floors. He's also trained to do bathroom finishing and he's trained to do exterior walls and so on and so forth. You know, it's rethinking that whole model of, of training our, 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 uh, our skilled trades and, and trades in general. Um, so, there's an opportunity to do it. We are doing it right now. We can do more of it, um, but like I said, it's going to take more, more labor, um, working together collaboratively, and, and and proof that it works. Which, you know, as a research center, we try to study that and and highlight the, the lessons learned or what has worked um, for for a variety of offsite projects.
1: So. Um, I guess it's my turn, is it? (laughs) Um, We've been talking a lot on the podcast, uh, and and, and you listen, so you've probably heard some of this, about small modular reactors. Uh, Most recently, we had Bill Labion, the president and CEO of Arc Canada. It was a really interesting podcast, as you probably know. He talked about uh, New Brunswick really being a manufacturer of small modular reactors, and And creating a, a a whole new industry for the province. And uh, I wanted to ask you um, uh, you know uh, what uh, what can your center do or maybe is doing with that s- uh, sector to help uh, realize this opportunity?
2: Yeah, so I agree. it's it's a major opportunity, and I know. UMB, my colleagues. Uh, I'm not sure if you've spoken to to Willie Cook. He's the chair of chemical engineering, but also the director of of um, Center for Nuclear Energy Research at UMB. Uh, so I know UMB is even working on a, a degree, uh, nuclear engineering degree. Uh, I don't know if really? I'm allowed to say that actually. So
0: maybe keep uh, we, that. One.
1: Maybe we can cut that part out. Uh, but no, but yeah, we we like late breaking news. It's good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well um yeah so so the role we can play I mean my understanding and like I uh I'm a civil engineer I get involved in the technical side but not as much as as I used to and so I I don't necessarily know all the science behind the SMRs but I know that it is going to be a manufacturing process There's you're gonna have to think about lean construction, just in time delivery, optimization, all that stuff. Um, You're gonna have to think about the supply chain. And I know OCNI, uh, organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries, does research in that area. And a colleague uh, was recently hired here in New Brunswick to Andre Pelche to to work with them, I believe. So, um, well, I the role we would play would be, I, I think, in supply chain. Uh, research in reskilling or, um, you know, training s- students who, who will then enter the industry in the industrial engineering space. Um, and then looking at the constructability and optimization. So once the Willie Cooks and uh, Arc and, and Multex and once all that is, is past, you know, the, the paperwork to, to get into production, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for improvement and optimization and that's where i think uh the center will will play a a more important role in that side of it um but you know all a lot of our industry partners are watching this space um it's something that you know we're collaborating with mb power and malta on i think there's more that we can do i'm hoping Maybe I can use this to connect with Wayne Power um, um, from the province um, to talk to them about how we could potentially collaborate. Because yeah, it makes sense, and and it's a great opportunity for our region.
1: Well, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that the UNB is uh, going to create a program in for nuclear study. I mean, if the province is going to be a leader in the production and export of SMRs, we're going to need very well trained people to do that work so you know this is uh, this is actually encouraging isn't it david that uh, that there's work being done to develop a workforce at the same time as the you know the development of an industry is underway i mean it often doesn't happen that way usually it, it comes later the, the fact that it's being done in parallel is uh, you know it gives me a great sense of optimism about that uh, that opportunity
0: Yes, and I would suggest also getting involved in research with the Offsite Construction Research Centre because they, right now we don't assemble these or build these SMRs anywhere, right? They're, this is still uh, under development right now as a sector. So the, the manufacturing techniques, the approach required, that's still under discussion uh, as opposed to the old model of building it on site um, as, as previous plants have been made. So, so certainly bringing the center in would be a really good idea. Brandon, that's all of our questions. We want to thank you for joining us today on the insights podcast to talk about the work of the UNB offsite construction research center. We wish you all the best as you further this important initiative.
2: Yes. Thank you for having me and look forward to continuing listening to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Brandon. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.